Good morning. Hi. So uh, we are right in the middle of the book of Acts, um, and if you are new with us today or fairly new with us, you know, people binge watch things all the time. I'm going to encourage you, go back and binge listen, okay? You can, you can hear where we've been in the book of Acts, and it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating story, weaving together the story of the Holy Spirit, how he empowered the first believers, the church, for the message of the gospel, the good news that, that Jesus was God in the flesh and that his death was not the end of the story. He, he rose from the grave so that we can have life and have hope. And especially last week, Mike Miller shared with us and did, did a phenomenal job laying out the work of the Spirit and, and, and when the Spirit comes in power. But one of the things that's true is that, uh, and Mike pointed this out last week, if, if you weren't here, here's, here's a tidbit from it, um, is, that, is that so much of life is like the mundane stuff, but the book of Acts is really focused on the big moments, like the, the, the supercharged, superpowering of the Holy Spirit. But most of life is just kind of, Ordinary days, you know, you, you, you get up and you go about your routine and, and you, you, your head hits the pillow at the end of the night and, and hopefully, you know, you were blessed by the Lord to have a day without too much trial, too much trouble. But then there's some days, there's some days that just sort of change everything, right? And in your lifetime, if we're going to be honest, in your lifetime, and this was an exercise for me this week because I, we were talking about this um, and I needed to come up with a story and so I went back through my 41 years of, of life, and, and I tried to come up with, like, what were those days? And, and of course, there's big days, like, like wedding days and, and the birth of children. But come on, who wants to be a cliche, right? So I, so I tried to come up with something else. And here's a day that changed everything for me. It was February 14th, I know, 1993, and I was in love least I thought. But this story is not about that. Um, it, was, it happened to be February 14, 1993, and I'm sure about that. But it actually was the day, the, the very first day. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Florida. And it was the, the, the day, the first day in my life where I'd ridden an airplane. Okay? And I rode an airplane. I was, I was 17 years old. I rode an airplane from Florida up to South Bend, Indiana. And so I have these two firsts on the, 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 this big day in my life. It was the first day I'd ridden an airplane, but it was also the first day that I'd ever seen snow. I grew up in, in Florida. We didn't, I mean, the, the snow we might get, like, every so often doesn't count. And, and there was one time in my life where I was in North Georgia, and there was, like, a pile of, like, two-week-old snow that had been shoveled into the corner of a parking lot. And, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, I was 14 years old, and I threw snowballs at my parents and all that stuff, but, but that doesn't count either, right? So... So, so February 14th, 1993, I'm on a plane for the first time, and I'm in snow for the first time, and it turns out, apparently this was some kind of significant blizzard. I've, I've, I've gone back to look, the blizzard of 93, and it doesn't exist anywhere that the internet recognizes, but it felt like that to me. You know, I'd never seen this stuff before. And so, so my, my dad and I, and I we, were, we uh, flew into South Bend, and we flew into South Bend because it was an airport near where I was looking to go to college. So this was a college visit my senior year of high school. And, um, and that day, I, I, we flew into South Bend. We headed over to the college. And uh, I, I met some people that night that actually really altered the course of my life. I was headed somewhere as a 17-year-old senior in high school. I had priorities that mattered more to me than, than things that really should have been important. And, and this trip to Indiana was at my dad's request. He wanted to go see this college. He'd spoken on the phone with, with a, a baseball coach from this little college in North Indiana. And that was, I was not interested. I, I saw the snow. I didn't, I didn't care to see any more snow. That was a long way away from this, the, my friends, and particularly on Valentine's Day, this person I thought I might have been in love with. And I had no interest but something changed on that day, and that day triggered things. And, and, and my life changed drastically because six months later, I was on campus for freshman orientation at this college. And shortly after that, I met the woman I really love. And that brought me here to Central Ohio in the Midwest, and I didn't go home to Florida to, to live out the rest of my days in the oppressive heat. Okay? 
And, and so, so it, it was a day that, that really did change everything. And I, I've, in, over the last several weeks, even just thinking about this and, and, and the nostalgia of my youth, it's interesting to think like what life would be if I hadn't got on that plane on February 14th, 1993, and, and flown north, well, and I, I certainly wouldn't be here today. And some of you are saying, hmm, you know, maybe you should have stayed on the ground. I don't know, right? But, but things, that, that, that one thing triggered a long line of events. And we're going to look at today, we're going to go to Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to pick up the story. We're going to go to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to look at a day that changed everything. Your life is different today because of this day recorded in Acts chapter 9. Even if, even if you, you are in church for the first time, this day has had a profound influence on shaping Western culture. I was, I was kneeling through a book not too long ago about the 100 most influential people in Western culture. Right? So the 100 most influential people who've ever lived you know, for, with, in, with Western culture in mind, a Western culture-oriented book. And it was interesting because um, you know, I have a bias. I think there's somebody who's pretty influential for Western culture. Um, but it was interesting because Jesus was number two on this list. And Muhammad was number one in, on this, in this book. And, and Jesus was number two. And, but then like number six was this person that they named the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. And the very first line on the chapter on the Apostle Paul said this. It said, it said, if it weren't for the Apostle Paul, without a doubt, Jesus would have been number one on our list. But Jesus has to share his, his notoriety with Paul. And again, my bias said, right? <laughs> because if it hadn't been for Jesus, there is no Apostle Paul. And so everything that we see from the Apostle Paul is attributed to Jesus. Therefore, thus, just amplifying, right, the significance of Jesus. But anyway, to give you a, a feel for it, obviously this was, not a, this was not a Christian book. This was just kind of a secular resource. But it, but it identified this person that we're going to meet in Acts chapter 9 with, with some detail here. It identified him as one of the top 10 most influential people in Western history and, in fact, someone who was robbing influence from Jesus, apparently. So, so let's take a look at this. If you're in Acts chapter 9... Um, we're going we're gonna to jump into this. And the very first verse of Acts chapter 9 says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now this is an, it's an interesting transition because quite frankly, if you just pick up and start reading at Acts chapter 9, you've got this conjunction but at the beginning of chapter 9, but it's, chapter 8 isn't really about Saul. So, so in order to understand this, who this person is that we're going to talk about, we have to go back a little ways and even look at some other passages of Scripture. So I just want to do this. But Saul, who is this person that we're going to look at today? I've already referred to him as the Apostle Paul, but as many of you know, his name was, when he's first introduced to us, his name is Saul. And, and I'll just say this up front because there really isn't a better place to say it later. His name does change from Saul to Paul in the text of Scripture, but this isn't like one of those stories in the Bible where God reaches in and changes somebody's name. It's really fascinating. It's about chapter 12 or 13 of the book of Acts. There's just one little line that says, but Saul, who some people called Paul, and then from the rest of the book of Acts, he's called Paul, okay? And, and, his, and he's attributed as the author of most of the letters of, the, of the, the rest of the New Testament. And so this is an important figure, but, but, but Saul, let's just start here. We need to understand who this person is in order to understand what's going to happen to them in chapter 9. It says, but Saul. So let's look at a few places where Saul has already shown up in Acts. And it says this, then they cast him, the him there is Stephen, out of the city and they stoned him. They killed him. In, in Acts chapter, chapter 7, we're introduced to a person named Stephen. Stephen is, is preaching the resurrected Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they take him outside the city and they stone him. And, and, and by, they killed him by throwing big stones on him. All right. And, and, but then it goes on, and the witness, witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first time we're introduced to Saul in the book of Acts. So we could say this, that Saul watched the coats of the stoners. Okay? Now, I realize that's a double meaning, and I'm really talking about those who killed Jesus, not the other kind of stoner. But, but, but that's the first time we're introduced to Saul He's standing around as, as an early disciple of Jesus is killed by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And, and it goes on to actually say, and he approved of this. 
Like he, he saw this and he liked what he saw. That, that someone who was proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was the, in Jerusalem the message would have been, Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures were all pointing to Jesus. And God has proven that he's the Christ or the anointed one, the Messiah, by bringing him back to life. That was the message of Stephen, and they killed him for it. And Saul stood by, and he approved of it. We see Saul again at the beginning of chapter 8. I said he wasn't in chapter 8. This is the only place he appears. It says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we find here with with Saul in chapter 8 as we go through the story of Acts that he persecuted Jerusalem Christians. So Paul was, or Saul was, was living there in Jerusalem, and he was going from house to house and, and taking people who, who were Jewish by, by heritage, but they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as, as the answer of the Old Testament Scriptures, and were, were Christians. They were followers of Christ, though the term Christians wasn't really used at this point. They grabbed, they were, he was grabbing them from their homes and imprisoning them for their belief in Jesus. This guy didn't like the message of Jesus. Fair enough? A few other things that we find out about him. In Acts chapter 22, Paul says this about himself. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. Now, Tarsus in Cilicia, was, was a, it was a Gentile town. It was a non-Jewish town. So we find out something about Saul in this passage that tells us, yeah, he's, he's really fervent about, about his Judaism, about his, his, his following of the, of the Old Testament law and, and, and becoming um, learned in, in the Old Testament law, but he wasn't born, he was an outsider to Jerusalem by birth. He was from Tarsus. Tarsus was a city far north of, of, the, of Israel, and um, it, was a, it was a fairly major city, but, but Tarsus, to be a Tarsus Jew would have meant that that Saul had a background amongst the Gentiles, amongst the people who weren't from Israel. But, oh, so he was born outside Israel, but the verse goes on to say, but he was brought up in this city, he was in Jerusalem when he said it, in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. In Acts chapter 22, he's talking to, to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And what he's trying to say is, at one point in time, I was one of you. I lived here in Jerusalem. I was fervent for the law. In fact, here's my resume. I was trained by Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel, we saw in, in an earlier chapter in Acts that when there was a controversy about what should happen with these early Christians, it was Gamaliel who stood up in front of the the religious Jews and said, just leave him be. His voice carried weight, it carried influence. Leave him be. He was, Gamaliel was an influential teacher and leader amongst the the Jewish religious party in the first century. A significant name. To be a student of Gamaliel was to be at like the highest divinity school in Israel at the time. To be studying from the best known theologian. And, And what Saul is saying is, I know Judaism I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was trained by Gamaliel. He's saying, this is where I've come from. So when we meet Saul in Acts chapter 9, this is who we're meeting. Okay? He, he approved of the killing of Stephen, one of the early Christians. He then followed up that, that killing of Stephen by going out and persecuting other Christians living in Jerusalem. But he was born an outsider but his, his devotion to the Old Testament law, to keeping the law, had brought him to Jerusalem and under the training of Gamaliel, this, this like priest of priests, this rabbi of rabbis. And that's the Saul we meet in Acts chapter 9. All right? So let's keep reading in Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is a really interesting thing here. It says Saul's still breathing. It actually is the only time it uses this word breathing to, to, in, in, the, in the New Testament in this kind of context. What it's actually saying is Saul's life was animated by this pursuit. He was breathing threats and murder. It was, it's like, it, it was the thing at the core of his being. 
and so much so that, that every breath he took, threats and murder were coming out of him. And so he's going around, um, he's persecuting, but then he says, all right, Jerusalem is not, the reach is not far enough here. I want to go further. So he goes to the high priest and he asks for these letters to go, to go and, um, into the other synagogues and, and to see if there's anyone who belongs to the way. And I highlighted the way there for a reason. This is actually the self-identified name of the earliest Christians. They referred to themselves in this way. We belong to the way. It sounds to me like if someone came to me today and said, you know, I said, what church do you go to? And they said, well, I go to the way. I'd probably Google that later to see what's going on there, right? Um, but it sounds a little suspicious. But, but it, it was the way that the earliest Christians identified themselves was through this, this little idea of the way. Now, the way is sort of what it means. It's a path, or what it says. It, it, it's a path or it's a road, but, but the implication is that it's something along which you travel, that the earliest Christians identified themselves as people who travel along a certain path. It wasn't just that they belonged in a particular place, but they, they walked a particular path. And that idea will continue through this, through this section. Let's keep reading in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, notice the contrast, the way, his way. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, so here, imagine this moment. He's along the road to Damascus. He's headed there. He's on his way to go to Damascus to gather up Christians and bring them back to be imprisoned in Jerusalem for violating the law. He was, essentially, he was on, a, was on a holy crusade to purify the faith in Yahweh, the faith in Jehovah God from this, this group of cultic people, the way. And so he go, he's get, as, he, as he's getting into Damascus, there's a bright light, right? There's a bright light. Suddenly this happens, bright light, and, and the voice that says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, this is fascinating, right? Because who had Saul been hurting? The voice says, that what you've been doing, you're persecuting me. But Saul's actions had been against all of the followers of Jesus. And this is a significant idea. And it's so significant, there's a whole sermon wrapped up in it that I'm not going to share today. But it would, I would be negligent to just read it and not say something about the, the truth, the reality, that, that Christ himself, Jesus himself, is so intertwined with his people. You see, the old way of thinking about it was that God was dwelling in the temple, and so people went to God. They went to the temple. That's where they met God. But something new has been introduced, and it's that, that the dwelling place of God now is with his people, that God dwelt with us. He is, he's, he's buried in us. He's, he's bound up in our identity, and so... When Saul's persecuting these people, the action he's taking, the posture that he has towards them, his attitude towards these early Christians was his attitude directly towards Christ himself. And nothing in 2,000 years has, has happened to change that. Can we, can we grasp this for a moment? That, that our posture towards, our attitude directed towards those who are part of the church of Christ, those who have by faith accepted Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in us, that we are so enmeshed with the very life of Christ that nothing's happening to us that isn't a part of the life of Christ itself. And so we cannot divide God's people without actively doing that with Christ. We cannot punish, we cannot judge, we cannot, all of those things, we cannot build up. It doesn't have to just be negative. We cannot come alongside and serve. We can't do anything with the people of Christ that, that isn't a part of the life of Christ itself. Why? He, he asked this question, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that's significant. 
But it doesn't end there. Obviously, verse 5, he says, And he, being Saul, said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Note, Lord is a, such a loaded term in the first century. Again, whole books written on this one as well. But Lord was, was a, a title that would have been reserved for like Caesar, the, the most powerful person. It, 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 dwelt, it dealt with authority. Who's in charge? And Saul immediately hears the voice. He would have recognized this kind of interaction, given his knowledge of the Old Testament law, that this is not normal, right? God is speaking here. Who are you, Lord? I thought I was about your business. I thought my way was your way. And the voice responds, I'm Jesus, the very one you're persecuting. Everything that you're doing, every action that you're taking against these people is an action against me. So he says, rise, enter the city, the city of Damascus, and you will be told what to do. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And notice this, Saul, here's what's fascinating about this, is that, and we're going to see this pattern, that Saul, is, he, he, he hears the voice, he sees the light, and, and yet from there, he's blinded, but he's told to do something. He's told to do something. He cannot see for himself, he's led into the city. They're holding him by the hand. Notice the way he was entering Damascus versus the way he, he intended to enter Damascus versus the way he now is entering Damascus. So the voice tells him, do this, and he does it. The, vo the, the, the voice of Jesus says to him, rise and go into the city. And Saul rose and went into the city. Verse 9. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Notice the same Saul and Ananias use the same title here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he may, might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. Let me start again, for those who don't know the Bible. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is rightly cautious, right? Wait a minute, God. You're asking me to walk into the, the belly of the beast. You're asking me to, to step into the lion's den. This is a guy who has the will and the authority to bind me and imprison me. And that, that's where you want me to go. I'm just double-checking here, right? He asks for the verification in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Ananias asks, are you sure this is what you want, God? And look at God's response to him. The Lord said to him, he is a chosen instrument. Now, there's more about this to be said as well. But the reality here is that Saul was chosen by God before Saul chose God. Before he chose Jesus, Saul was God's instrument. It means that where Saul was in that moment with the option, the choice that was before him, that was God had brought him to that moment for a purpose. There was a plan in this. These things weren't just happening and God was waiting to see what was going on and then he was going to react and respond. God had chosen Saul. Now the implications of that are enormous, right? God had chosen a Jew born outside of Jerusalem. God had chosen someone who went to Jerusalem to study under the highest of teachers in first century Judaism. God had chosen someone who hated Jesus so much that he was going from house to house and dragging Christians out to prison. That's the person that God had chosen. 
Notice it's not that Saul at this point had chosen Jesus. Saul was not attracted to church and then changed his mind about who God was and the message about Jesus and the resurrection. God had chosen him. God had chosen him. And then he says this, verse 16, he said, this is still God speaking to Ananias, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What a reversal. What was it that Saul was doing? He was bringing suffering to those who followed Jesus. And here's what God says about him to Ananias. I've chosen him for this mission to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings. And this this happens throughout the book of Acts. Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. He's my guy. But by the way, the path is going to go through suffering. There's a complete reversal here of Saul's intention. Saul went out to to create suffering. He went out to to make suffering manifold on the people of, of, of Jesus. And yet... God invites him into a life of suffering himself. Sometimes I think, in my more heretical moments, I think God needs a new PR guy, right? No, no, no. What God needs to hear is just just say yes to me and all your dreams will come true. Which in some ways he says, but he says, you're going to need to hold on for that. Someday you'll be with me and all of your longings will be fulfilled. They'll be complete But in the meantime, right, pretty much everything that we look into buying or if someone's trying to sell us something, it comes with the promise of an easier life, a more comfortable life, a life that's somehow enhanced in some sort of pleasurable way. And what God says to Ananias is, my chosen instrument, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, so much to say about Ananias. But his, he, so he's, he's skeptical about Saul, right? But he goes to the house. And when he gets in the house, he addresses Saul, not as you scoundrel. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't keep him at, at arm's length, but he says... Brother Saul. Ananias, again, a whole other sermon in that, but Ananias is this hand of God reaching out to someone who's in the midst of a crisis. And he's pointing him towards Jesus. So he he tells him, this is Jesus who appeared to you, has sent me to you, and he says, to regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't it fascinating the connection between seeing and the Spirit? Don't lose the imagery of Saul's blindness along the road. That Saul was blinded along his journey. And and as the promise of the Spirit comes, it's at that point in time that Saul is going to be able to see. And so the implication for us, right, is that without the Spirit, our vision is obscured. Without this relationship with Jesus, without the eyes of the Spirit of God, we don't see things the way they really are. We're blinded by any number of things. But it's the Spirit who comes and opens our eyes. In verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Notice what Paul does immediately. What's the next step? And I'm just, this is a commercial, this is not a sermon about baptism, but I'm sorry, it's showing up on every page of the book of Acts. Everyone who meets Jesus, one of two things is true about them here in the book of Acts. Either number one, they, they were baptized immediately, or two, they were baptized right after immediately. Okay? Like, that's it. There's no, there is no third path here for, for these people. And it just so happens, this is just a commercial, I'm going to plug this now, it just so happens that today you have a chance to hear about baptism. It's like someone planned this. Right? He believed. He received the Spirit. 
And it says it, he, he rose and was baptized. He made a first step of obedience to his new Lord to associate in a very tangible moment. It's not, the, it's not the water that purified him. It's Christ that purified him. But the act of getting into the water was a first way to say yes to his new Lord. And that invitation still stands for us. If, if we've said yes to Jesus, why haven't we followed through with baptism? So here's this day that changes everything for Saul. Let's trace it back again. Saul is actually headed north. He's headed north. He's full of pride. He's self-assured. He is positive that his, his mission is from God. He'd spent his whole life preparing to defend orthodoxy, to defend the truth about, about Yahweh, about the God of, of the Scriptures. And as he's heading along, he's persecuting the followers of Jesus. He's rounding them up and imprisoning them. He had been there for their murder. And suddenly it all changes, right? Oh, this is much better than an airplane ride and seeing snow for the first time. It all changes. And eventually what's going to happen with Saul is that he's going to, his self-assuredness is, is gone. He's humbled. His, his, his certainty and his mission is, is gone. And, and, and he's, he's now blind. He, he doesn't see the world around him. He walked in so confident. He was leading this group of people up to the city of Damascus. And it winds up that he has to be led in by others because of the frailty of his encounter with Jesus. And as we go on through his story, we're going to find that he goes from being the persecutor to being persecuted. The suffering that God tells him he's going to encounter, it, it happens, and we don't even have to wait long. The, the Jews in Damascus, in that very city, begin to, to torment him and want him killed. And, he, and ultimately, he winds up going south to Jerusalem. He, he has a complete reversal in every way, shape, and form. And so what we want to do is um, we want to take a minute and we want to talk about change, transformation. And we want to deal with what it is that, that happens when we encounter Jesus. How do we reckon with, like Saul, a past that we've lived? It's, it, it can't be changed. There is no rewinding the tape. There's no editing process on that. And how does that past influence our present and our future? That's, that's where we want to go from here. And so, so he's changed. And now I want to say this too. Notice it's not recorded here in Acts chapter 9. When we think about this change, it's not recorded that Saul prayed a prayer and accepted Jesus into his heart. I'm not saying that he didn't. It's just de-emphasized if he did. It's not here. It's not that, that Paul joined the religion of Christianity. People weren't even called Christians at this point. What Paul did was that he said yes to Jesus. He's drawn to Jesus. Not the religion of Christianity. Now, Christianity is what, where the, the religion that the followers of Jesus, we move into a particular stream but, but the, the work, the job of, of getting, coming, into, coming into a right relationship with God is the work of Jesus through the people of the church, but we're not inviting people to come be a part of our religion. We're inviting people to have a relationship with a person, a living God. And this is, this is a significant distinction. And so when we look at this and we ask, what is it that's emphasized here versus what's de-emphasized? Saul's conversion doesn't include saying a magic phrase that somehow moved him from, from going to hell to going to heaven. Though I'm certain that that happened. 
Saul's conversion story isn't about Saul and his soul. It never once in this passage tells us that, that Saul's soul was saved, that suddenly his soul was, was, was changed or enlightened. It says he met Jesus, and then he did what Jesus told him to do. You see, the earliest Christians, the earliest Christians, when they thought about the change that they were being invited into, they called it the way. They called it the path. They called it, come and walk along this road with me. And that's going to be important to us when we think about our present moment. Wherever, wherever you are, wherever I am in the midst of, of change in my life, in the midst of the invitation to say yes to Jesus, it's important that we continue to say yes to Jesus. That we're not, we're not being asked to become more religious. We're being asked to become more, or to deepen our relationship with a God who's alive that we can know. And that's what changes us. So let's take a look at this. What about our past? Saul has changed, but what about our past? What do we do with our past today? Saul had one, and, and it was not a great one. Oh, it was, it was lofty by certain standards. But it wasn't... It wasn't one where we would say, we would pinpoint him and say, you know, that guy, that guy would make a great Christian missionary. No, he'd make a great person who kills Christian missionaries. That guy would make a great author of the New Testament. No, that would be a guy who's trying to see that all copies of the New Testament, all, all the message of Jesus is, is obliterated. But see, our... Our present and our future are, are not divorced from our past. Saul, being born as an alien but trained as a Jew, born as a, as a, as a Jewish person living abroad, Saul was uniquely prepared. Remember the mission that God gave to Saul? He said, I've chosen him for something. He's going to take this message. He's going to take my message to the Gentiles. What about, how about this unique individual, this sort of, this person who was sort of a, a hybrid of, of upbringings where he was born outside of Jerusalem and knew that way of life. And we find out later in the story, his father was actually not Jewish. And yet he had chosen Judaism. He had chosen Judaism. He'd chosen to study the Old Testament law so that when he encountered and engaged those who were trying to convince him that Jesus was not the Messiah, not the Christ, not the one anointed by God to make a way for us to have a relationship with God, he, he had the knowledge and the ability to refute them. It actually says in, in places that he confounded the Jews with his arguments. You see, his past uniquely prepared him for his present and his future. Now, here's the thing. I don't have a very dramatic past. You may be like me. I, I don't know. I don't know your story. Some of you I do, but I don't know all of them. For some of you, you may be like me and you may say, my past is pretty bland. It's pretty ordinary. By the way, thank God, right? I think those of us in the room, or those in the room with us who have the kind of story where their path to Jesus went through a lot of pain, I, I bet you they would all trade their story for yours. Thank God for that. And at the same time, ask why. Why did God walk you along a particular path? Why did he walk you through a path? I've, I've had to encounter this. I, I'll just, I, I want to put my cards on the table. I grew up like in the church. I mean, I was there every day. And if church was enough, my mom and dad saw fit to put me in a Christian school. I mean, I was like, I lived in the Christian ghetto. Constantly had the Bible thrown at me and constantly being invited to do all, like say yes to Jesus again, rededicate your life. Are you sure that your baptism took the first time? We might need you to get in the water again. Like I grew up in that environment. And I, I went through it and I did it and I did camp and I did all the things. That's my past. And then this fascinating thing happens when I hit early adulthood. 
And I'm searching, God, what is it that you have for me? And there was no light from heaven. I wasn't blinded for a period of time. But I very, very clearly heard God say, who is it that you know? And go to them and try to help them in the ways that others helped you. And he sent me to a Christian school. And he brought me to this church. He said, don't sit on all of that stuff that, that you learned, that you knew. Share it. Use it. Give it. Now, your story may not be like mine, but what is your story? What is the pain that you may have gone through? What's the difficulty or the trial that you may have moved through that brought you to this present moment? What is it about your past that God may be asking you to use in your present? That he may be moving you towards a future? Because this is the thing, remember? Saul's conversion, while it had impact on his soul, it's not about his soul, it's about the mission that God had given him. And so what do we do with our past? You see, our present is not divorced from our past, and we don't want it to be. This same Saul, years later, he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus, and he said, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. You see, your past is not the issue. There's nothing in your past that's too big for the grace of God to cover it. God's grace covers our past. Whether your, your sins are kind of little or whether they're large, whether your pain is a mountain or whether it's just a tiny little pile, it, it's insignificant. God's gift brings all of us into a relationship with him. And once we have him, the pain of our past, the decisions of our past, those things are insignificant. We have him. And so does getting in touch with our past produce gratitude for God's gift of grace? You see, how do we respond to our past? One of the first things that we've got to do is we've got to thank God. We've got to thank God for the gift of his grace. Thank you, Lord, that you have given me something that I couldn't earn, that I can't have on my own. I cannot access it without you coming to me to give it. Just as Saul was met on the road to Damascus by Jesus, Jesus has invaded your life. If today's the first day you're hearing about the gospel, congratulations, today's your Acts 9 day. Jesus has moved towards you. He's moved towards you so that you can say yes to him. Which brings us to what do we do with our present? Okay, so we're there. We've, we've encountered Jesus. And no matter where we are along this path, the saying yes to Jesus thing isn't, isn't necessarily a one-time thing. It's a, it's a now thing and then a next time thing and then a time after that thing. So what do we do with our present in light of where God has brought us? We've got to be faithful to what's next. What step of obedience is next for you? You see, here's, here's a tendency, and we'll get to our future in just a minute, but, but our tendency is to, is to put off the next decision that needs to be made to be obedient to Jesus because there's something down the road. But like Saul, Jesus says, get up and rise, go into the city. He does. Wait here. Someone's coming. He stays. And as the scales fall off his eyes, he's baptized. And, and so for us, what is it that, that God is doing in your life? Where are you at present? That's, that's the question. Where is it that God has you? That's just as Saul was on the road to Damascus, and that's exactly where God had him to encounter him. Where is it that God has you? Who is it? What is it that God may be asking you to do? Not a year from now, not five years from now. It's great to have, to have plans and to think forward. And, but what is it right now? Because you see, we are his workmanship. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 said, by grace you have been saved. It's not of yourself. But it goes on in verse 10 to say, you are his workmanship. Like you are, you are a, you're a masterpiece that's in, in the process of being completed. There is stuff right now. Who is in your life that has need? And I'm sorry, I can't answer it for you. 
Because this is, it's unique to you. It's your present. Who's there? Who needs you to be Ananias for them? Who needs you to say, yes, Lord, I'll go and do it? And you see, one more thing is that cheap faith must be examined. Remember what was said in our present? If we would say about ourselves like, you know what? Right, Jesus doesn't make much of a difference in my life right now. I'm not even sure what he's asking me to do because I'm not sure that I hear him speaking to me. I just go about my business. I make my decisions and I hope Jesus comes along and is okay with them because I'm going to do them anyway. I live that way. I make my plans. I do what I want today. And then I kind of hope that Jesus is going to be just fine with what I worked out. But you see, this is, this is a faith that says, I, I said yes, I said. We put saying yes to Jesus in the past. I said yes to him. Now I've, I get I'm, to my life. I'm going to go on about my business. But remember what Saul was invited into. I like to forget it, but remember what he was invited into. You've got a mission. You've got a mission. And that mission is going to cost you, Saul. Has, has my faith with Jesus really cost me? Now, it, it blesses me. It, I have benefit from it. I flourish in ways I would not without the Spirit in my life. But have I said no to things that my flesh wanted because of Jesus? If I haven't, and where I haven't, I'm cheapening the gift of God's grace. I'm his workmanship. He is working on me in the present. So what about our future? Let me wrap up here. Consider the cost of following Jesus. You see, this whole idea of, of Saul not being drawn into into Christianity, but being drawn to Jesus is that Jesus isn't going to hesitate before he asks you things. He asks you to give up certain things in your life. He asks you to give up attitudes about others. He asks you to give up conveniences that you've grown accustomed to. He's not going to stop. He's not going to say, you, you've passed into retirement now from my hand in your life. We've got to consider the cost of following Jesus. You see, because cheap faith, cheap faith may not be the faith, true faith in Christ. I may have once acknowledged that God is real, but have I said yes to Jesus as Lord, that he has the right to govern my life? We've got to consider the cost of following him. The rest of Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the way. God has good work for you to do. He has things that he has prepared you. Your past has uniquely prepared you for good work that God has for you to do. I don't know what yours is. I'd like to say that I am so consistent with saying yes when Jesus introduces new work to me, but I'm not. You see, we're all along this path of being changed. The Saul story, it seems like, it feels like, it was, it was all at once Saul went from being completely one thing to completely another. But Saul in his own writing says, this is the same Saul who writes this. I, he's, he says, I'm God's workmanship. He is working on me. He has work for me to do even to this day. He saved me and that work is, the work of saving me, bringing me into his kingdom is complete. But he's not done with me. I'm still walking the way. And so change, change that we're introduced to, in essence, we're God's tool. That's what we are. You see, we've, we've become enamored with the notion that, that God came and died for me. We've so elevated the self that the work of God was simply about me and my soul. And I'm not here to tell you it wasn't about you and your soul at all. But if we say that and we neglect the fact that we were saved to a mission, 
We were saved because God has work for us to do. We were saved because the, the, the very thing that God did to save us, he did for our neighbors who have not encountered him yet. He did it for them. And he's uniquely prepared you in some way to bring that good news to them. And me as well. And somewhere in the midst of our past and our future is this present moment, the change that's, that we are in the midst of. And we've, we need to ask, we need to ask the question, the dangerous question, who are you, Lord? And be ready for an answer that leads us, if we're going to call him Lord, that leads us into obedience to him as the, the rightful authority in our life, as our king. We're gonna, I'm going to pray, and then the, the band's going to play one more song. And just would you, if you would reflect on the, the, the words from this song and make them, make them a prayer. God is, he is transforming us. He's changing us. He's shaping us. But it's for his work. It's for his work. Let's pray. God, um, we're, um, we open your word and we don't always see things that make us feel comfortable. And I ask today, I ask today for an extra dose of honesty for myself. I ask that, um, that I would reflect fairly with who I am, and that um, the change that you've begun in me, that you've initiated, would be ongoing, that, 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 that my no's would become yeses, that my values that, that put me at the center of your work would, would shift and understand that, that you've brought me to a place for your purpose. God, we know that you're with us. We want to be blessed by you. And God, we want to understand fully what that is. Show us more of yourself today and this week and beyond. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.